You are listening to The Investor Way with Sam Ball and Jonathan McEwen. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. Hello, welcome to The Investor Way with me, Sam Ball, my co-host, John McEwen. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing Rio Tinto, Ibstock, BHP, Burberry, Associated British Foods, and Netflix. John, should we start with Rio Tinto? Yeah, so Rio Tinto, it's the world's second largest miner, and it's also listed on the FTSE 100. They had their fourth quarter production results out this week, with iron ore production coming in at 319.7 million tonnes, which was 4% lower than in 2020. And that was due to an above average rainfall in the first half of the year, cultural heritage management and delays in growth and brownfield mine replacement tie-in projects. Iron ore shipments were 3% lower than 2020 and included elevated levels of SP10 product as a result of delays in growth and brownfield mine replacement tie-in projects. Bauxite production of 54.3 million tonnes was 3% lower than 2020. That was due to severe wet weather in the first quarter impacting system stability throughout the year, equipment reliability issues and overruns on planned shutdowns at Pacific operations. Aluminium production of 3.2 million tonnes was 1% lower than 2020 due to reduced capacity at the smelter in British Columbia following the strike that started in July 2021. The Labour Union and employees have now reached an agreement with controlled restart due in 2022. Mined copper production of 494,000 tonnes was 7% lower than 2020 due to lower recoveries and throughput as a result of prolonged impact of COVID-19. Titanium dioxide slag production was 9% lower than 2020 as a result of community disruptions and subsequent curtailment of operations at Richard Bay Minerals, coupled with unplanned maintenance and equipment reliability issues at another Rio Tinto site in Canada. On the 24th of August, Richard Bay Minerals resumed operations following stabilisation of the security situation supported by a national and provincial government, as well as substantive engagement with the host communities and traditional authorities. On the 21st of December, they announced that they'd entered into a binding agreement to acquire Rincon Lithium Project in Argentina and the Rincon Mine for $825 million. And Rincon is one of the largest undeveloped lithium brine projects in the world, and it's located in the heart of the Lithium Triangle in the Salta province. Chief Executive said the Rincon project holds the potential to deliver a significant new supply of battery-grade lithium carbonate to capture the opportunity offered by the rising demand given the by the global energy transition. So in terms of valuation, Rio Tinto trades at just 9.83 times earnings and yields an impressive 9%. Market cap is just over £88 billion. So, I mean, to me, they were, I suppose, they weren't bad results, but they were up against difficult numbers from an exceptional 2020 but I do like it as a company I think definitely having commodity exposure whether it's in the form of a miner or an index fund is a good idea I also like with Rio Tinto that it's investing in the future um, with lithium but it does still rely heavily on its iron ore production not that that is a bad thing because I think the production costs that I've read for Rio Tinto are about 18.5 or $18.50 for a tonne of iron ore. And it's currently trading at 
$29 uh, per ton, and it averaged $168 per ton during the second half of 2021. I think you could also make the argument that with lower interest rates and higher levels of government spending at the moment, that that would continue to support higher commodity prices. But obviously we don't know, and it is something that's cyclical. But at 9.8 times earnings, I think it would be a risk worth taking. What are your thoughts, Sam? Well, I mean, so everything was down a little bit in terms of volumes, and then prices, they're down from last year as well, are they? Uh, yes, they are. Okay. I don't know. I think I'd probably just buy a commodity ETF if I wanted exposure to it, because it is quite, I think owning the miners themselves is a lot more volatile. And obviously like under 10 times earning sounds pretty cheap, but it does depend what the price of commodities does. And you are at the mercy of that. I, I know you'd counter it by saying, well, in an inflationary environment, the price is probably unlikely to go down significantly. But I don't know. I, I just think if I wanted exposure, I'd do it through. Uh, commodities ETF rather than one of the miners? Would you ever consider yeah. owning one of the miners? I mean, I have owned uh, one of them. I have owned BHP in the past. Um, and what, when I owned it, it did very well. I sort of <laughs> almost look back and regret selling it. But I think the other thing that you wouldn't get with the commodities ETF is dividend yield. And that's very juicy at the moment. Quite similar to house builders, aren't they? Yeah, in many in many ways, in many ways, but uh, yeah, and that I suppose that production cost of eighteen eighteen dollars or just uh, eighteen and a half dollars when iron ore trades at at the moment at one hundred and twenty nine dollars a ton. That's a big margin. I'm not going to check, but it'd be interesting. To, I don't know if they were listed. They must have been at least one. It'd be interesting to see how they did the last time in an inflationary environment because they can't be bad stocks to hold. No, and I suppose when you did have a depression, well, the most recent depression in commodities prices uh, prior to COVID, they did, I suppose, rationalise their operations as businesses, and they're in a much well, they're much more streamlined now. So I don't think they're you know in a bad place to sort of kick on from here. But yeah, cyclical businesses certainly, and I suppose it's whether you'd whether you take the risk, uh, like you say, and buy an, a commodities index to benefit um, from the change in the commodities prices or whether you'd actually buy one of the businesses themselves. And you do get, you are rewarded with that dividend. Is this the one that's leaving the FTSE? No, that's BHP. It's the second mine that we've got on the list today. Right, so okay. they're, they're, the big, they're the biggest two miners, BHP being the biggest uh, with a market cap of over 100 billion and Rio Tinto being about 88 billion. Right. Well, we'll get to that then. No spoilers. Okay. okay. Ibstock. Ibstock, yes. Yeah. So we're going on to Ibstock, which is the brickmaker. They have come out with a trading statement and they have said full year revenue is forecast to rise 29% to 409 million. And that's that's quite interesting, actually, because 409 million is bang on the full year revenue for 2019. So they are now back at pre-pandemic levels of revenue with underlying cash profits expected to be modestly ahead of previous guidance for 93 million pounds. This reflects resilient customer demand despite price increases to offset inflationary pressures. Cash flow is ahead of expectations this year, supported by a strong performance in the second half and improved working capital management. Net debt at year end fell to 40 million pounds from 53 million pounds at 30 June, 2021. 
CEO Joe Hudson said, whilst we are mindful of ongoing uncertainties, including industry supply chain pressure and cost inflation, the good momentum achieved to the end of the year provides us with a strong platform for significant further financial and strategic progress in 2022. So he said that cash flow performance for the year was ahead of expectations, which is why the debts come down. Um, and that debt of 40 million that compares with 69 million in 31 December 2020 and 53 million at 30 June 2021. So it's coming down quite quickly now. We said cash flow performance benefited from both the strong trading performance through the second half of 2021 and continued focus on cost and working capital management throughout the period. The reduction of net debt was achieved after resumption of the ordinary dividend payment made during the second half of the year. As announced on 10 November, during the final quarter of 2021, the group completed the refinancing of its existing revolving credit facility, diversifying its credit sources at attractive rates, while simultaneously achieving significant extension of the group's debt maturity profile. In terms of the outlook, they've said looking ahead, we are encouraged by the strength of the ongoing recovery in the construction industry and the resilience of demand from our house builder and merchant customers. Whilst we remain mindful of ongoing macro uncertainties, including those related to supply chains and input cost inflation, the good momentum achieved through the final months of 2021, as well as additional brick capacity coming on stream during 2022, provides us with a strong platform for significant further financial and strategic progress in the current year. Overall, market fundamentals for the group's products remained robust, with a structural deficit of housing and government policy, which is supportive of the role the construction se sector will play in underpinning UK economic growth. Our strong financial position will enable us to continue to drive forward our strategy, and we expect to make significant investment in 2022 to, to grow both our core business as well as to deliver material diversified expansion through Ibstock Futures. And Ibstock Futures, that was, that's a new business unit that was announced in the last quarter, which will focus on growth, growth initiatives, starting with the manufactured brick slips, a type of brick facade. I don't know what that is. The group will spend £50 million to create a brick slip factory in West Yorkshire as part of the new strategic initiative. And the new plant is expected to be up and running in late 2023 and should provide capacity for a maximum of 60 million brick slips a year by 2025, which should translate into at least 10 million pounds of cash profits each year. They've also said in the outlook that the commissioning of capital enhancements is on track to increase their clay network capacity by 5% by mid-2022. And they've made ambitious carbon reduction commitments, including a target to be net zero carbon by 2040. In terms of the valuation, they're trading at a P ratio of 12, and that compares to an average P ratio since listing of 12.7, and they've got a prospective dividend yield of 4.2%. I think this is a very good trading statement. I think the fact that they're going to be back to pre-pandemic levels, I think is very good. I think it's probably quite a good business to be in in an inflationary environment, similar to the miners. I think they can just pass costs on to the house builders, and the house builders will just pass them on to the buyers. <laughs> I think the valuation is pretty fair. It's it's low, but and the dividend yields good. But I think this is a business that struggles with growth. Um, mm, yeah, and yeah. you you sort of see it coming through there, where they are trying to grow, but it's very capital intensive. So they're having to spend a lot of money on that new plan, and then it's only going to be adding ten million to cash profits each year. So it's it's a very good return. But and again, like it said in the statement, they're going to be, you know, increasing the clay network capacity, but that's only by five percent. So it's I think it's a business that's you're probably not buying it 
expecting a huge amount of growth, which is actually why I recently sold it. John, thoughts on this trading statement and Ipstock as a company? Well, yeah, I, I mean, largely in line with you, but if you're getting 4.2% back, you don't need to have sort of, it doesn't need to be a stellar growth stock, does it? You can just hold no, 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 the I, income I think... and it is defensive. It can sit there in the portfolio compounding. So yeah, I, I, I suppose I quite like it actually. I think a yeah. P of 12 is fair. And just let it compound. Well, that's what I would do. I don't think I'd probably like it enough to go out and buy stocks in it, but uh, myself, but I think it's, um, you know, a, a good company. But you've already got house builders, so you've I do, I less do. need for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess a decent yield from them too, but uh, perhaps less risky, actually, if you had Ibstock rather than... I think so, yeah. Builder. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Well, they're not at the mercy of house prices as much. and The, the house builders need to pay bricks regardless, need to yeah. buy bricks regardless of what the housing market's doing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, but pe- probably better. Well, potential potential better returns with the house builders if you ho- held them directly. But I suppose it depends what you want, really. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. Well, we talked about it the other week. Part of the reason I sold it was to just buy more Boohoo, which <laughs> I think Boohoo so far not very well actually. Um, <laughs> but I think Boohoo. I think over the next few years, yeah, I in the long term, yeah. to grow more than Ibstock. But yeah, no, we'll no, see. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We'll see. See how long it takes. Should okay. we go back to the miners? Yeah, let's go okay, back to the miners. Um, so on to the world's biggest miner this time, which is still listed on the FTSE 100, but not for much longer, um, which is BHP. They had a trading update with the figures app for December 2021 with copper production down 11% on 2022, 742 kilotons with lower volumes at, uh, at the Olympic Dam due to the planned smelter maintenance campaign, which is completed this month, January 2022. Iron ore was up 1% to 129 megatons, with higher volumes reflecting strong supply chain performance, increased iron ore care availability, and the continued ramp up of the south flank plants. This was partially offset by the impact of temporary uh, temporary rail labour shortages due to COVID-19 related to ongoing border restrictions. Metallurgical coal was down 8% to 17.7 megatons with an impact of double rainfall. Energy coal was up 5% to 7.2 megatons. Zinc was down 18% to 62,892 tons and uranium down 55% to 818 tons. Production guidance for 2022 remains unchanged for iron ore, energy coal and nickel. And full year total copper production is trending towards the lower end of the guidance range, reflecting lower production guidance from some of their mines. And metallurgical coal guidance has reduced as a result of the significant wet weather impact and COVID-19 related labour constraints. In terms of valuation, BHP has a market cap of £122 billion and trades at just under 15 times earning, with a prospective dividend yield of just under 9%. And that's in line with its dividend policy, which targets to pay out a minimum of 50% of earnings as dividends. I mean, I like it similarly to Rio Tinto, and it's done very well from the price of copper, which is up 52% on the year, and iron ore up 69% on the year, which accounts for 82.5% of BHP's revenue. But sadly, it's moving to Australia, so it won't be listed on the FTSE 100 for much longer. But I think both Rio and BHP are in strong positions at the moment, despite some of the production coming in slightly lower in the last, well, uh, this year. Sam, what are your thoughts? Do we have any idea why the PE is so much higher? 
than Rio Tinto. But I think that BHP has a lot more coming from copper. So right. I think it's a much, much bigger copper miner than Rio Tinto. And I think, again, I'll have to check the price of copper and what it produces at, but I think the copper is very, very profitable. Not that the iron ore isn't, but the copper is more valuable. Um, uh, so okay. I think that is... Pr- I think that is why, but let me just have a Google and see if there's just a comparator. Don't want us getting sued. No. Okay. Peter's listened and he's gone all in on BHP because you said that copper yeah, was more um, profitable than iron. That, yeah, let me just... And they are... I mean, I probably should have mentioned it. BHP are selling off the... They had a petrol division. It wasn't, like, big, but they're, they've sold... Or they're selling that off. I think it's because it's portfolio is thought to be higher quality and i uh and the mind you mean yeah okay yeah 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 so i think it i think it is down to the copper analysts emphasize that the copper in particular has especially good fundamentals does it a bit like with pharma when you're looking at the pipeline yeah i i think and let's see uh so rio yeah i think i think it's because of the exposure to the copper fine yeah so in, in that case yeah it's, i don't know my, my instinct would be to go for the cheaper one of the two <laughs> despite that yeah i, I, I wouldn't it's feel, probably I, yeah, in, I wouldn't feel well enough placed to probably and to you just say, don't but, have to worry about that if you just i know you don't get the dividend yeah. but if you just buy if you want commodities exposure as a proportion of your portfolio i would get i'd still be getting a commodities index just because I think yeah. it's probably going to move differently as well. Whereas like BHP and Rio Tinto, they're probably going to move in line sort of with the FTSE 100. So you're not necessarily well, getting or, the same. Or, or do, do, do they move the FTSE 100 itself? Well, yeah, they, they could because <laughs> of the size actually. Yeah. Like if the FTSE's, you know, having a bad few months, they probably are going to as well. Whereas the commodities index, you might get a bit more, it's more of a, well, it's just more of a pure play, isn't it, on the prices? Mm, so yeah, I'd, um, I'd, mm, the miners for me, they get, it's a bit like farmer where I, like it's, it just goes in the too hard pile. There's it's like quite, a lot, it's quite a specialist area. Too. Yeah, there's too many yeah. extra things you need to know about that I don't, yeah. I don't. Care and then to, you, you do find you sort of if you were to be a bit bearish, you do find you know they've got they have a dam disaster or you know accidents big acts big accidents happen and there are strikes and there are issues with native peoples and things and then that can really tie up these companies yeah i did read hot commodities last year i think we reviewed it on the show but i'd say all that really did was just make me realize how much i don't know about commodities in terms of like there's a lot of different things you need to be thinking about and looking at if you're going to start buying commodities properly and start especially if you were to actually start picking your own commodities which ones you thought would do well i'd yeah. I just buy a commodities index. I think yeah, yeah, yeah. I, d- I don't see myself ever going beyond that. Yeah, no, fair enough. Well, I mean, that, that's what I've uh, that's what I've done in my own portfolio. But anyway, it's not to say that these are bad companies at all. No, no, they it's probably just, are on the surface just, at least. They they look like very good companies. Just we're not bright enough to analyze. Yeah, that's well, it's a full time job. Yeah, it is. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, it's a life's work. Anyway, um, onto a company that is easier to understand: Burberry. Yes, Burberry, the luxury fashion reseller, they have come out of a trading statement. And compared to two years ago, Burberry's third quarter full price comparable sales rose 26%. This reflects double digit growth in the Americas and Asia Pacific and less severe declines in Europe, Middle East, India and Africa. 
Total comparable store sales are still down 3% as the group continues to reduce markdown. Burberry now expects full-year underlying operating profit to rise 35%, and currency headwinds aren't expected to be as harsh as previously expected. The shares were up 4.2% following the announcement. So if we go into the results in a bit more detail, and these comparisons are with Q3 2020, Burberry's strategy shift continued in the quarter, with efforts to reduce markdown, meaning overall sales declined. The increase in full price sales was especially pronounced in outerwear and leather goods, which rose 38% and 29% respectively. The group now has 31 stores fitted in line with the new concept, and a further 50 will be delivered by the end of the financial year. Online sales grew by a high double-digit percentage, partly helped by improved buying processes. There's also been an increase in multi-channel customer interactions, including the booking of of store appointments. Comparable store sales were flat, but full price sales rose 22% in Asia Pacific, largely because of reduced COVID restrictions. Mainland China and South Korea performed especially well. Japan and South Asia recorded softer trading, reflecting reduced tourism. Europe, Middle East, India and Africa saw comparable store sales dip 17%, with full price sales down 4%. The region is being held back by lower tourism, which made up about 40% of revenues from the, for the region before the pandemic. The Americas were the best performers thanks to new customer growth. Comparable store sales were up 8%, while on a full price basis, the increase was 72%. In terms of the valuation, the company is trading at a PE ratio of 19.1, and that compares to a 10-year average of 20.4, and the prospective dividend yield for the next 12 months is 3%. In terms of the share price as well, but yeah, the shares are currently trading at £19.23, and that compares to a 52-week high of £22.67 and a 52-week low of £16.73. So they're about about in the middle of that 52-week range. And the market cap's £7.7 My view is it's obviously a very good brand. I think this is quite a positive trading statement, actually. I'd be quite pleased with this if I was a Burberry shareholder. I think the prospective dividend yield's quite good at 3%, especially considering it looks like there could be quite a bit of growth in this thing as well. And I think that PE ratio of 19 is pretty good compared to the 10-year average because it looks like it could have quite a bit of growth ahead of it. And that's not really, I'll just check the financials, but I don't think it's really been growing before. Yeah, so from 2017 to 2019, for those three years before the pandemic kicked in, the sales were basically, even up to 2020 actually, because it's a March year end, but sales are basically flat. So there hadn't really been any growth. And I think there could be quite a bit of growth now. I think I think the strategy shift where they're doing less discounting, that seems to be working. So I think that PE is actually pretty cheap if the strategy continues to work. What do you think about this trading statement and Burberry as a company, John? I'd be positive. Uh, I think that it's a very, very good trading statement and very good numbers. And then I suppose the other thing that I probably add uh, to what you said, especially if we're going into an inflationary environment, you'd definitely be able to expect for a luxury brand like Burberry to be able to pass on those costs to consumers without much difficulty. I think when you compare it with its peers uh, listed abroad, it's actually quite cheap. But I don't know whether I would, I don't know whether I like it enough as a brand uh, to pay up for it. For me, it's not about paying up. I I think a P of 19 is probably quite fair, I think. It's just more, I think, there's, there's probably other companies I'd rather own before Burberry. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if it would go on the watch list for me. No, I, I mean, I, I don't think it would for me, but I still think it's 
not a bad company. Yeah, if <laughs> I was speaking to someone, yeah, yeah, if, if I was talking to someone and they said they own Burberry and they sort of talked about some of the things we talk about, I think, well, fair enough. I can see, you know, or as if I was talking to someone and they said they owned a Cardo, I wouldn't <laughs> yeah. be like, wouldn't talk to them. <laughs> End of conversation. So, no, I, I like it actually. I think it's pretty fair valuation. Um, yeah. So, should we move on to another business that has a pretty fair valuation? Valuation. Well, yeah, you see, this is what I would, uh, would pay for. So, Associated British Foods, best known for its Primark brand, they had a trading update out this week. In the 16 weeks to the 8th of January, sales were up 19% to £5.6 billion, with growth across all segments, led by the retail division with less discounting going on at Primark. And they were also able to offload last year's unused autumn and winter stock. The group has seen cost inflation across the whole business. However, it intends to offset this through cost saving and price increases. And management is expecting significant progress in underlying profit for the half and for the full year. In a little bit more detail, then, the retail division saw sales rise 36% to £2.7 billion with the reopening of the store estate on the back of last year's lockdowns. Retail parks continue to outperform the city centre stores with retail like for like sales ahead of pre pandemic levels. However, overall sales are still down 5% on pre-pandemic levels, with like-for-like sales down 10% in the UK and 14% in continental Europe. The US business, though, saw like-for-like sales up 4% on 2019 levels. Operating profit margin was significantly ahead of expectations and is anticipated to exceed 10% by half year. The group have also confirmed that the new website is expected to launch by the end of March and it will allow customers to see the product availability in their stores. The grocery division saw sales rise 2% to £1.2 billion, but rising inflation put pressure on margins and pricing increases were not enough to offset this. Both Ovaltine and Twining's tea performed strongly. Sugar stood out, though, with revenue up 12% to £609 million, and inflationary pressures were avoided with a number of forward contracts. Moreover, sugar production in the UK is up to 1.04 tonnes from 0.9 tonnes last year. The ingredients division saw sales rise 10% to £528 million, although margins were under pressure. And in agriculture, sales were up to £545 million from £507 million, but again, margins under pressure. In terms of valuation, Associated British Food has a market capitalisation of just over £16 billion and trades at around 15 times earnings with a dividend yield of around 1%. I think it was a very good trading update and I like the diversified nature of the business but also its core brand, which is Primark, and the sort of, I suppose, the, the price input, where it is in the market. It's got very decent margins, and I think it's a fair valuation for the business at 15 times earnings. Sam, what do you think? I think it's very fair. As well, you gave a dividend yield of 1%. I think that's a historic one. For the next 12 months, I think it's going to go up to 2.4. I think it's very fair at 15. I like the diversity as well. I think it's pretty fairly priced even if its growth is limited to, say, like the UK and Europe. But I think when Primark's in the US, I know that um, light flight sales were only 4% ahead of 2019, but there was a pandemic in the middle of that. And when they're planning to add half a million of square foot to the store, US stores this year, I think that could be interesting to watch. Because if, if Primark can do well in America, you've got all this other stuff included in it, and it's only at a P of 15 I think you've got quite a lot of potential upside there and not a huge amount of downside because if Primark flops in America, 
I don't really, it, it doesn't really seem like it's priced for Primark to execute to perfection anyway. No, that's right. That's right. So, yeah. Okay. Well, I, I won't ask you which you prefer over those uh, Burberry or um, Associated British Foods, um, but we can come to that at the end. Have you bought uh, this yet? No, I haven't. I bought Boohoo and I didn't buy Primark, but no. well, it's um, just one of these where, like, foods. it's another one where it's like we've covered it two or three times. Yeah. And you keep saying you like it. <laughs> Uh, yeah. that's usually a good warning sign you should probably buy it yeah i know i know whereas i like it but i don't think i like it quite as much as you yeah i think it sits better in your portfolio than mine <laughs> i don't know what that means um, <laughs> on to our final company then netflix netflix yes so netflix i'm assuming everyone knows what it is at this point they have come out with their q4 results and revenue in the three months, the 31 December, rose 16% to $7.7 billion. And all these figures will be in dollars, driven by year-on-year growth across all geographies. An expected increase in content spending pushed operating profit 33.8% lower to $631.7 million. Group added 8.3 million new paid subscribers in the quarter, below expectations of 8.5 million, bringing the total up to 222 million. Netflix expects to add 2.5 million new paying subscribers in the current quarter, down from 4 million last year. The group has put this down to the timings of new content releases, which are weighted towards the end of the period. The group is targeting operating margins between 19 and 20% in 2022, compared to 21% in 2021. The decline is largely attributed to a lot stronger US dollar. The shares fell 20.3% following the announcement. So if we break the results down, by segment, the group added 1.19 million new paying subs in the US and Canada. An average revenue per membership was up 9.4% to $14.78. I'm assuming that must be monthly. Subscriber growth in Europe, Middle East and Africa slowed with 3.54 million new additions compared to 4.46 million last year. Average revenue per membership rose to $11.64 from $11.05. Latin America recorded a 14% increase in average revenue per membership and a 0.97 million uptick in new paid memberships. New paid memberships in Asia Pacific rose from 1.99 million this time last year to 2.58 million as the group lowered prices. The result was a decline in average re- revenue per membership to $9.26 from $9.32. The group had a free cash outflow of 569 million compared to an outflow of 284 million last year. The group finished with the year with net debt of 13.7 billion compared to 12.5 billion last year. In terms of the valuation, there's no dividend and Netflix is currently trading a PE ratio of 37.8 and that compares to an average PE since listing of 122.9. Obviously the stock has, I'll just get the share price up, but the stock has pulled back quite a lot recently, which on the one hand seems harsh because I mean, they added 8.3 million subscribers compared to 8.8. So they've not really missed the target by a huge amount. But when you're that expensive, you don't really need to miss it by a huge amount. But the 52-week high is $700 a share, and it's now just under $400 a share. And it's actually, it's pretty much, it's priced where it was pre-pandemic now, I think. It's, it's priced as if the pandemic didn't happen, but I guess you'd counter it by saying well, it was very expensive before then. And a P of 37.8 is not cheap. One thing that I think is worth noting with this as well, the P is possibly less helpful with this business because it's got to spend so much on production. So it might have a it might have earnings on paper, but if it's got if it's pouring out cash every year, 
does it really? Because if it's if it's got a free cash outflow of five hundred million dollars, you can say it's a positive PE, but that just makes me question how they're measuring it really. Because it's a cash outflow every single year. So to me, that suggests the earnings should be negative. But I think it's a fantastic business. I think they probably have the chance to. I know they're at two hundred million subscribers, but it it wouldn't surprise me if in sort of ten or twenty years they're at a billion or some stupid figure like that. I think they can continue to keep increasing prices. I can see why someone would buy it, but I think when it's got a market cap of over two hundred billion and it's at a P of thirty seven, I sort of think well. The business could perform very, very well, and that might just justify the current share price. If you actually want to get a market beating return, I get nervous with some of these bigger stocks when they're already at quite high PEs, even after the drop, and the valuation's so expensive. For me, the biggest concern is the market cap's already so big. It's like, well, well, how big can it get? And the, the answer for me is I just don't know, so I probably wouldn't buy it because of that. What about you, John? Yeah, it's, I mean, certainly think it's very expensive. I think if you look at it historically, it has missed its subscriber forecasts on several occasions before, and that hasn't stopped it from still growing, you know, or increasing um, the subscriber growth rate and also the share price outperforming too. So it's not to say just because of this setback, back it can't go on to, you know, outperform, but I'd be a bit hesitant and I probably wouldn't, well, I definitely wouldn't be brave enough to buy shares at the current price but i mean it's something because it's such a big company that i've got an index funds and um i don't really have to worry about it too much but i wouldn't be brave enough to go out or have the belief to go out and buy it as a you know a standalone or individual share no right then so of the six businesses we've talked about today so rio tinto ipstock bhp burberry abf and netflix if you had to buy one which one would it be I think I would probably be going for associated or oh, ABF. I don't mind the miners, but uh, I mean, we, we covered it earlier. There's, uh, there are lots of moving parts in those companies, but no, ABF would be the one I'd go for. And I think it's a very fair valuation at the moment. I think I'd probably go for ABF as well. Um, but I do like Burberry and Ibstock as well, actually. Yeah. Before we wrap up, we've got a very quick review of going down Tobacco Road. So it's a book by a guy called Gene Hoots. And it was actually recommended in the interview I did with the 20s trader a couple of months ago. But yeah, it's about RJ Reynolds, the tobacco business, which is now, I think it's it's now part of um, British American tobacco. And I think bits of it might also be part of Japan tobacco or whatever it's called. But yeah, it's basically a full history of Reynolds, the company. And it's, so it starts with like the guy, RJ, RJ Reynolds and how he's built up the business. And then he's gone and it's 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 about the culture and how they've grown and and then they've got to the point where they've started facing regulatory issues, the decisions like in terms of international expansion. And it's quite interesting because they were the dominant um cigarette in the US. So Winston was the dominant one. And at one point Marlboro only had like a one percent market share. And one thing that massively made a difference was when they were banned from television advertising, because like part of their a big part of their marketing, it was like the catchy jingles. So it'd be like uh, Winston tastes good like a cigarette should. They'd have a catchy little jingle and that didn't translate well to print, whereas the Marlboro Cowboy translated really well to print advertising. So Marlboro ended up going from a 1% market share to being like the dominant cigarette in the US. And also the management got quite comfortable and they had all this cash and they didn't know what to do. The studies were starting to come out. And I know the tobacco companies disputed these studies far past the point where the, the evidence was pretty clear, but like linking smoking to cancer and lung cancer and stuff like that. 
And they knew there was going to be regulatory problems. So they had to decide what the direction they were going to go in as a business. And the direction they decided to take was to basically start acquiring other businesses. And a lot of them were consumer like acquisitions. So like it talks about um, Philip Morris, which owned Marlboro, and they ended up acquiring Kraft. And uh, Reynolds, they had loads of different ones. They had um, Nabisco. They actually had KFC at one point. They had like some oil businesses. They had like uh, transportation, like the big cargo ships. Um just loads of like silly ways to reduce the returns for the shareholders because a lot of the time they were using stock to buy these businesses and it was in the cheap tobacco companies and then they were paying quite high PE ratios for the companies they were buying. So it then looks at how all they did, how all these businesses did and how it would have done if they just paid a dividend. And as well, because they were focused on this, they didn't really put a huge amount of effort into international expansion. So internationally, Philip Morris just became much more dominant. And when they did eventually sort of start focusing on the international they did very well but they'd probably already left it a bit too late in terms of what they could have been but it's really really interesting in terms of just looking at how the decisions they've made throughout the decades and the effect that's had on the business and the shareholders and i think it does it does sort of show like what a lot of the top investors say like buffett in that that like business and investing they are absolutely tied at the hip so Even if you're not interested in tobacco stocks, I actually, I, I could not recommend it enough. If you're interested in investing, I think it's such a good book to read. Mm. And what do you think about um, Philip Morris buying Vectura, the British pharmaceutical? I think if they looked at the history of their own company, <laughs> they probably know it's not a very good idea. Um, okay. They had craft at one point and that didn't, yeah. I don't think that worked out particularly well for them. Okay. So yeah, probably better off. I think if history shows anything based on this book, they're better off just returning the cash to shareholders, which is what we've tried to say whenever we've covered them on the show. <laughs> okay, right. Well, on that note, thank you again for listening and we'll see you again next time. See you next week. Thank you for listening to The Investor Way. To get in touch, please follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. Neither Sam nor Jonathan are financial advisors. For investment advice, please consult professional advisors.